Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Alice Wilson to tell us all about her recently published book titled Afterlives of Revolution, Everyday Counter Histories in Southern Oman, published by Stanford University Press in 2023. This is a fascinating book for a number of reasons, and perhaps most prominently from my perspective, because this is a really groundbreaking study of something incredibly tricky, the legacies of officially silenced revolutionaries. This book quite literally is studying what happens to a revolution's ideas and the people involved after the revolution is not actually gotten what it wanted, after it's been silenced, after it's been repressed, which... I mean, I'm in awe of the methodological and research chops needed to figure something like this out. Um, But this book does a whole bunch of other things as well. So Alice, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us about it. Thank you so much, Miranda. I'm delighted to have the chance to engage uh, in conversation with you. Wonderful. Before we dive into your fascinating book, though, would you mind first starting us off with a bit of an introduction of yourself and explaining why you decided to write this? Of course. I'll say a little bit about how I came to this project and then why I was particularly interested in this revolution and some of the questions that the project raises. So I came to this project through my interest in revolutionary social change and asking how it plays out over time. Previously, I'd studied How a Revolution Keeps Going, and that was my first book that focused on the liberation movement and the revolution of Western Sahara in Northwest Africa. So I came to this project about Oman with a new question. I wanted to ask what happens to revolution after military defeat and repression? And Dofar's a really interesting case to ask these kinds of questions because it was the scene of a very important revolution and counterinsurgency in the 1960s and 1970s. So I'm just gonna locate us uh, geographically. Dofar today, is the southern region of Oman, and it takes up about a third of the territory of Oman. Uh, And this region between 1965 and 1976 was home to a liberation movement and a revolution. They were fighting against the British-backed sultans. They led a social revolution to try and liberate society. It became one of the most important revolutionary movements in the region at the time. But it faced an increasingly internationalized counterinsurgency that defeated the movement in 76. And after that, as as you uh, mentioned in your introduction, uh, there's been an official silence about this revolutionary past um, in Oman. And also outside Oman, that counterinsurgency campaign has come to acquire something of an international reputation as an allegedly model counterinsurgency campaign. And because of that official silence within Oman, from outside Oman, we've known relatively little about the lives of former revolutionaries living in post-war Oman. So through the project and by spending time with former revolutionaries, I wanted to ask questions like, what survives of revolution after defeat? 
does an allegedly model counterinsurgency prevent a revolution from having lasting impacts? And if there are legacies of revolution that survive military defeat, then what kinds of new questions do we need to ask about revolution and counterinsurgency? And these kinds of questions are important beyond Dofar and Oman. Uh, They apply to other revolutions that meet with overwhelming backlash. And they're especially important today in Southwest Asia and North Africa for helping us to think about how the revolutions that began there in 2010 and 2011 and overwhelmingly met with repression can still go on to have lasting impacts. So those are some of the questions that pushed me to write the book. Hmm. And they give a really good idea of what some of the many interesting aspects are about the book. I think not just to people interested in Oman or this region, but much more generally as well. So I'm quite excited to dive into it. And I'd love to start um, with one of the words in the title. In fact, the first word in the title, because I found this really interesting, the term afterlives. Can you tell us more about what you mean by afterlives of a revolution and why you're focusing on it? So when I talk about afterlives of revolution, I'm trying to do three things. So first of all, I take up afterlives in the more literal sense of lasting legacies or influences or a life after death, in this case, life after the end of the formal activities of this liberation movement. So a specific example of uh, concrete afterlives uh, that um, the book looks at, um, one example of that that's quite uh, prominent in the book is the idea that there are social values of revolution around social egalitarianism and uh, social inclusivity that are still important in post-war Oman and that former revolutionaries are reproducing in their um, personal lives. So that's one sense. And then the second element that I try and bring out by afterlives is really the stress on the plural, afterlives, to try and capture the diversity of the experiences of former revolutionaries. There's no single trajectory, and they were differently positioned according to gender, ethnicity, tribe in this region is is, uh, a significant um, social background, uh, racialized identities. So all of these um, were differently positioning former revolutionaries with sometimes forms of relative privilege, sometimes forms of greater marginalization. So they weren't equally willing or able to engage with with afterlives. So I try and bring out that diversity. And then the third thing that I try and do is think about afterlives as a way for us to challenge conventional narratives about the revolution, the counterinsurgency and the aftermaths. And so this is the idea that if we recognize that revolutionary values have survived, then we have to ask some new questions and contemplate alternative interpretations of the past and its legacies. And so this is what I mean when I talk about the book, uh, trying to decolonize dominant narratives about revolution and counterinsurgency. Uh, So I think that that involves two kinds of tasks, calling out what's problematic about the colonial tropes and narratives um, about this uh, revolution and counterinsurgency and trying to suggest some more helpful alternatives, uh, alternative lenses and interpretations. So there are a lot of narratives about Dofar that reproduce colonial tropes and colonial power dynamics, especially the narratives that set up the counterinsurgency as a model campaign, stressing that it won hearts and minds and conversely, setting up the revolution as a negative experience for many Dafaris and and unpopular with them. So these kinds of narratives 
have lots of problems with them. And to date, most approaches have been bringing out these problems by focusing on what happened at the time of the revolution and the counterinsurgency. So pointing out the role of violence in the counterinsurgency, pointing out how people participated in revolutionary initiatives. And those approaches undermine colonial narratives because they show how they're legitimizing colonial violence and trying to distract attention from colonial violence. And um, they help us to retrieve revolutionary agency by looking at what people were doing at the time to transform try and transform their lives. So afterlives, I think, can help us do that work um, and carry on further with decolonizing these dominant narratives about revolution and counterinsurgency. So on the one hand, from the perspective of afterlives, we can see more problems with these triumphalist claims about a very successful counterinsurgency, uh, because contrary to, to those claims through afterlives, we can begin to see that the counterinsurgency, both in its violence and then its attempts to win over hearts and minds, didn't erase long-term engagement with revolutionary values. And then by looking at afterlives, we can also continue to retrieve revolutionary agency by seeing its ongoing impacts in the post-war period. Uh, So we can see how revolutionary values were still important for former revolutionaries and led them to take on you know important uh, roles and have impacts in the post-war period Mm. see just already we've gotten to a point where i'm like yes that whole concept of afterlives and the many things we can do with it that's immediately applicable to scholars across a whole bunch of different topics conflicts places times and that's i think one of the big contributions of the book, even as just this one idea. Um, but of course, that's not the only contribution of the book. I'd love for you to take us through some of the more practical elements of actually doing this research. As I hinted at, at the beginning, um, it's quite a tricky thing to ask people about, um, a revolution they might have participated in that has such a triumphalist suppressive narrative afterwards. So can you walk us through the kinds of research dilemmas you faced in conducting this fieldwork and how you proceeded? This was indeed a very challenging project in terms of the methods and ethics of both the fieldwork and then also for writing and publishing. So the conditions in Oman of authoritarianism, um, of surveillance for all Omanis, but of course, former dissenters like former revolutionaries experience particular forms of surveillance. And the fact that government has this official silence about the history of the revolution and it censors, book, censors books and writing about it, all of that makes it uh, very tricky uh, to talk to people about it in Oman. It's not the only reason that it's a sensitive topic. It was also a time of a lot of violence, uh, both within the counterinsurgency and the revolution. And so people can have traumatic memories of of that violence. So that's another reason that we have to uh, be very sensitive. Uh, And bearing all that in mind, I would still argue that there can be a mandate to do research about this kind of topic and its legacies. And I see two areas where we can see that mandate emerging. So on the one hand, if we only did research about the topics that an authoritarian regime is is happy for people to do research about, then we'd have a lot of silences and gaps in our research and we'd end up reproducing the 
priorities and narratives of those authoritarian governments. And I think that in itself would be a problematic research outcome. And then the second uh, area that I see a mandate emerging for this is that Omanis themselves are challenging the government silence in ways that they can, such as by publishing outside the constraints of the official censorship, say publishing outside Oman or publishing uh, on the internet. So they're already retrieving the revolution as a period of of, uh, significance in their own lives that they're reflecting on. Um, So that also... um, indicates an appetite locally for the possibility of addressing this past. So how I tried to face this, during the fieldwork, the main thing that I was trying to do was to let Omani set the direction of discussion. They're much more experienced than I was in navigating censorship and surveillance, so they really had expertise in that. And so I would ask open questions. I would often use euphemistic terms. And that allowed somebody to take up or avoid the topic of the revolution and its legacies as they preferred. So, of course, that sometimes meant that the revolution didn't get mentioned. Uh, So um, it certainly uh, was a constraint. And of course, my positionality uh, was significant. What I was able to to learn about uh, will be different from what another differently positioned researcher uh, could learn about. And then when it came to writing, there were a lot of difficult decisions uh, to take as well. And I had some feedback from people in Oman on earlier draft material. And I realized that I had to uh, introduce more self-censorship. And um, what I came to as an approach was that the book would only include empirical material that are the kinds of interactions that people in Oman and the authorities who surveil them already know about. So the book doesn't make any new kinds of empirical revelations for Omanis. Uh, it, it, within those constraints, it, it makes an argument about former revolutionaries continuing to reproduce revolutionary values and arguing in that light that we rethink revolution, counterinsurgency and, and their aftermaths. Um, so there is that argument and people in Oman I'm sure we'll respond uh, to that, um, but the book doesn't make any any uh, new empirical revelations for people in Oman. Mm. Thank you for walking us through that. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned it in the book as well, because I think that's a really helpful thing to understand and an important one as well as part of the overall work of um, disrupting the sort of received one-sided narrative of what happened in Oman. To get into the details of what happened and what the afterlives have been, would you mind giving us a brief introduction to the front? What was it? When did it form? Why did it develop? What did it aim to achieve? And of course, what happened to it? So the front was an armed national liberation movement. It's one of many that we find in sites of formal and informal colonialism in the context of post-World War II decolonization movements. So this front began in 1965 as an anti-colonial movement aiming to liberate Dofar from the British-backed sultans. And the original name reflected that. It was called originally the Dofar Liberation Front. And the founders of this movement took inspiration from different sources, from Arab nationalism, from leftist ideologies, but also from political values that have a long-standing history in Southern Arabia around valuing autonomy, um, from perceived outside rule 
and those kinds of values had been important for previous uprisings before uh, this revolution. So there's a heterogeneous ideological background for the founders, but from 1968, the leftists come to power in the movement with a new leadership, and that's at a time when there's a rise of leftism in other decolonization movements. They embrace Marxism-Leninism as an ideology. They have a lot of inspiration from from Maoist uh, policies. And so they have bigger ambitions in this incarnation. They want to try and liberate all of the Gulf from formal and informal British colonialism. So the new name reflects that, the popular front for the liberation of the occupied Arabian Gulf. And that's when we see these projects to transform society really take off, you know, liberating women, um, enslaved persons, other marginalised persons, promoting healthcare, schooling, education, new infrastructure projects, obviously against a very, very challenging context of the counterinsurgency war. But, you know, there was an effervescence of projects to try and transform society. And that's part of what makes this movement at the time one of the most important revolutionary movements uh, in Southwest Asia. But that leftist turn also meant that the front appeared more alarming to Britain and its allies. Uh, They feared a spread of leftist ideas that could threaten Western access to oil resources elsewhere in the Gulf. And so those fears saw... um, the counterinsurgency become increasingly internationalised. Uh, Britain played significant roles, but also mobilised resources from allies uh, like Jordan and, and Iran. And um, so we have a, a long counterinsurgency war. It deploys a lot of violence against both combatants and civilians. It also, in the second half, tries to have a hearts and minds campaign. Uh, So that counterinsurgency has a military victory by 1976. So we get the front continuing uh, exile political opposition movement in South Yemen until the fall of socialism there in the early 1990s. And so in those post-war years, most former revolutionaries return to live in Oman and they will live under the government that they'd once opposed Wow, I'm really impressed by how clearly and succinctly you've summarized that. I don't know if I could do that for um, some of the groups that I've studied, but thank you very much um, for giving us that understanding. Thinking then about the front um, and what they were trying to do and what ended up happening to them, this idea of kind of change on a lot of levels um, and obviously the violent response to it means that a lot of things were happening at once. Um, And you engage with this in the book. You use a lens of messiness to understand kind of what was happening, how people were reacting. And I thought it was especially useful in thinking about the idea of engagement in revolutionary social change. Because, of course, one of the difficulties, especially with hearts and minds, is thinking about kind of, well, what did everyone else think? What did the locals think? Did they agree with this? Did they not? And that's always really tricky to kind of nail down as one or the other Can you tell us about how and why you've used the lens of messiness in understanding some of this? So I use the term messiness to step away from and offer an alternative to some of the polarizing narratives that we have about revolution. So on the one hand, we have narratives of sympathizers to revolution that stress how much people support revolution. And there's a risk with these narratives that they can romanticize revolution and neglect internal problems and contradictions that people face, such as violence within revolutionary movements. 
And on the other hand, we have the narratives of those who are hostile to revolution and more sympathetic to counterinsurgency. And those kinds of narratives tend to stress revolution as unpopular, as red terror, and they set up the counterinsurgency as saving local people and indeed saving international stability from catastrophe. And so, as we mentioned earlier, problems with these narratives include that they glorify colonial violence and they also neglect evidence of how people engaged with revolutionary programs. So when I talk about messiness, I'm trying to develop two insights. The first is messiness as an interpretation of revolutionary social change that I suggest seems to be closer than those polarizing alternatives to what the evidence seems to suggest of people's experiences at the time. What we find in records from the time, in memoirs, in some of the memories people shared with me uh, when they were speaking with me, is that people's experiences of revolutionary social change were different from those polarizing narratives. Uh, It wasn't necessarily a neat process of simply embracing or simply rejecting revolutionary social change. Uh, But Dafari seemed to be making active choices about how to engage with the revolution and negotiating the terms of the engagement. And that's what I mean by messiness in the sense of not being neat. So I'll give a brief example. So some women who were um, sympathisers of the front and living in front-controlled areas, we have images of them and memories of people who were alongside those women um, that show them embracing radical social change. They were wearing masculine clothing. They cut their hair short. They didn't cover their hair. Um, But one of the former pupils in a revolutionary school remembered to me uh, women who embrace those kinds of changes, nevertheless rejecting bras. They didn't want to wear bras because they reminded them of the cloths that camel herders put over the udders of lactating female camels in order to reserve milk for humans and present the calves from drinking all the milk. So I find this an example interesting because on the one hand, we've got the changes in hairstyle and clothing that seem to suggest women embracing gendered transformations in line with you know, a vision of a socialist modernity, of you know, transformed gendered relations. But on the other hand, with the rejection of bras, we can see they still remain attached to values and experiences of herders. And that seems to strike something of a contrast with that departure into you know, a different vision of socialist modernity. Uh, so that's an example of the idea of the process and the experience of social change not being neat. And so messiness, I hope, can better capture a sense of people's active choices about how to engage with social transformations on the terms that were meaningful for them. But that raises a question. So is this messiness a, a pathology in the revolution? Is it a sign that the revolution, say, didn't offer the right things or that people didn't commit to it fully? And um, so I don't see it as a pathology. And this leads me to the second goal that I have in using messiness and that I think that it helps us understand something that is otherwise potentially a um, potentially a missing piece of the story of revolution of trying to understand how revolutions go on to have lasting impacts over time because we can imagine a competing explanation might be to say um, perhaps on the part of sympathizers that revolutions go on and have lasting legacies beyond military defeat because people are so committed to the revolution they have this overwhelming dedication But I think that from these examples of people making their own choices and engaging in some forms of change and not engaging in others, 
that kind of explanation doesn't seem to me the most convincing. But I suggest that if we look to messiness, and then because that directs us to people's active engagement with revolution, then messiness actually becomes a really interesting part of the story that potentially offers a more helpful framework for understanding how revolutions go on to have lasting legacies. So messiness, I don't see it as a, as a pathology. I see it perhaps as part of this story of how revolutionary social change can lay down foundations to have lasting impacts. Thank you for taking us through that and for that example. I think it does a really good job of illustrating what it is that you're talking about here. Moving to another aspect of the events in Dufar, um, you talk in the book about this being, quote, an arresting case through which to analyze struggles for spatial and political control. So given that we've talked a little bit about social change, would you mind telling us a bit about this quote? Sure. So... What I wanted to uh, get at uh, with uh, the ideas underpinning that that quote is to try and bring in revolution and counterinsurgency as factors that are transforming space and society uh, and and indeed political relations. So what we have in the Dofar conflict are two contrasting visions, first transforming space and society. So there's the vision of the revolution and the vision of the counterinsurgency, and they have their own visions attached for for political relations. So these visions do have things in common, but they also have massive differences. So what they have in common is that they're both modernizing visions. Both projects are trying to modernize Defar through social and economic development, through building schools, promoting healthcare, building roads, wells, new economic initiatives. But the visions are not equivalent they're not interchangeable the front's projects are inspired by a socialist inspired vision of a more equal society with popular control over resources and participation in political life there's a vision of uh, promoting gender equality they try and undermine tribalism and its hierarchies to have more democratic access to political power and resources and the counterinsurgencies projects reflect a more conservative vision of social, economic and political life and inequalities are inherent to that vision. The counterinsurgency is working with a patronage system. The ultimate patron figure is the sultan and just, you know, he's distributing resources through the counterinsurgency to different client groups. So there are inherent inequalities there between the patron between and the client groups, but also between the client groups. There isn't a... Pr- vision here of meaningful political participation for uh, Defaris to hold the Sultan to account. And in fact, over the course of the counterinsurgency and early post-war period, the British back establishing Sultan Qaboos, who's the Sultan who comes into power in, in, in uh, 1970, the British back establishing him as an absolutist monarch. So there isn't a um, route for meaningful political participation to hold uh, the Sultan to account. The counterinsurgencies distributing resources through tribal networks, and that's exacerbating tribal tensions. And there's a conservative vision around gender relations, you know, upholding patriarchal authority. So for instance, when the counterinsurgency recruits paramilitaries from the front to become pro-government paramilitaries, they only recruit men, and they there's no place for the female guerrilla fighters. Uh, so um, it's not a vision of gender equality from the counterinsurgency. So I'm interested in the proximity of these two visions to help us get a better view of the roles of revolution and counterinsurgency in the transformation of space. 
and to recognise their roles, especially in Gulf monarchies. So Gulf monarchies have undergone spectacular changes from their early 20th century forms when they were in their majority, you know, the people living there were living in conditions of material poverty. And then, of course, by the end of the century, there are you know, massive cities, very advanced economies, general, generous welfare states. Um, there's greater material wealth for, for citizens there. And so there's a family of conventional explanations about these transformations, and they vary according to political positioning. Some explanations have a more um, have an emphasis on the idea of rulers in this region being benevolent in gifting modernization to their subjects, and other explanations pay greater attention to the role of income from oil and gas and the political context of the imperatives of authoritarianism and the need to legitimize authoritarian rule by distributing resources and also thinking about the legacies of colonial approaches to development. And so through the Dofar case, I think we can make two interventions to those discussions by acknowledging the respective roles of revolution and counterinsurgency to transform uh, space. And um, we can see that um, the revolutionary projects, we can see there how there's a role for revolutionary agency in transforming space. The revolutionaries begin the transformation of, of, of DOFAR in the wartime period with their projects that then the counterinsurgency tries to rival. And they have a role in the post-war period as well, because former revolutionaries who became motivated from revolutionary values of supporting a common good went on to play a significant role in staffing post-war development projects because they were happy to or happier to work in projects that could benefit multiple tribes, whereas people who'd been closer to the counterinsurgency projects were reluctant to take part in projects that were going to benefit tribes other than their own. So um, on the one hand, we can retrieve revolutionary agency in that history of the transformation of space and then um, also bring counterinsurgency into that conversation, recognising that counterinsurgency prerogatives were also among the factors that pushed Gulf monarchies to transform space and society. Uh, so we see that most intensively for Oman's government with its counterinsurgency agenda to transform pace, space and society. But other Gulf monarchies felt it too because they gave post-war loans and grants to Oman uh, to help further post-war development in Dofar. So um, I see Dofar as a case that can help us recognise, you know, retrieve that agency of the other kinds of actors who shape space beyond the you know, concentrated um, political figures of you know, colonial authorities or um, state authorities. So broadening the vision of you know, who are the actors who are shaping space, but also remembering that counterinsurgency is also one of the factors that, that has helped transform the Gulf. So speaking of transforming um, the Gulf, obviously, as you've briefly mentioned in that answer, kind of there's a wider context. This is not just happening in Oman. And the idea of disliking something happening if it's benefiting other tribes, this being something that the afterlives of revolution is disrupting, is part of a wider conversation about, about patronage politics, which are hugely influential in many countries, including many in the Gulf. So that's, I think, one clear example of how some of the afterlives of revolution are showing where this patronage politics maybe is less hegemonic than we might think? Are, are there other legacies of the revolution like this when we think about the context of patronage politics? 
So I think this brings us back to the idea of questioning the big narrative of the success of patronage politics in Dofar um, and how afterlives of revolution suggest the shortcomings of counterinsurgency violence and the distribution of resources in erasing engagement with with, uh, revolutionary values. Uh, So... um, DOFAR is supposed to epitomise patronage politics working well. Um, So um, that's the idea that rulers are distributing resources to citizens, often favouring certain groups, perhaps for strategic reasons, and they're expecting political loyalty return. And the idea is that because they're distributing those resources, they don't need to offer routes for political participation that holds a ruler to account. So the idea that the DOFAR counterinsurgency campaign was so successful seems to epitomise that narrative of how that works, because the idea is that the government was distributing resources during the counterinsurgency to DOFARIs, and that quelled their appetites for dissent during the war. And then the government has continued to distribute resources, and that has continued to quell appetites for for dissent in the post-war period. Of course, that kind of interpretation is problematic because it vastly neglects the role of coercion, that um, people weren't in a position to make an um, uncoerced choice about how they faced these resources. They were facing the possibility of dying by starvation or dying by airstrikes. Um, so coercion was absolutely uh, a part of the DOFAR counterinsurgency, and it's also a part of how Gulf monarchies rule actual coercion or the threat of coercion uh, to put down actual or or perceived dissent. And so, again, uh, this points back to the idea that when we take afterlives of revolution seriously, then that um, those narratives that have put Dofar on a pedestal, as if to suggest this is an example of it working really well, of patronage politics working so well to quell dissent and and you know elicit political loyalty then um when we look at the afterlives of revolution then we see that actually that's at the very least an incomplete project because there is still long-term engagement with revolutionary values and indeed that they can feed into later generations appetites for alternative political visions Hmm. interesting thank you so much for Again, I think that's one of the kind of ways that this book tells us about Oman, but also beyond that as well. One aspect of the book that I found really interesting, and I think goes back to what you were saying um, right at the beginning about kind of listening to Omanis and having those conversations in sort of nuanced and careful ways. Um, You talk a lot in the book about everyday socializing and examining kinship practices um, and this was not something I immediately thought of in terms of like aftermath of a revolution. That's where you focus. But I'm I'm converted now, having read the book, that this is a really fruitful area to examine. So can you tell us about the everyday socializing and kinship practices that we might understand as being some of these afterlives of the revolution? Absolutely. So it's perhaps helpful to just recap before we dive into that about what makes everyday socialising and kinship so interesting. They're parts of everyday life. They might seem really ordinary. They include lots of ordinary humdrum interactions like who we're meeting up with informally or how we care for family members. And 
all of that, the ordinariness, the fact that they're everywhere happening all the time is what makes them so interesting. Because first of all, they can tell us a lot about the dominant values in a society. So when I say dominant, I don't mean that there isn't contestation about them, but it's going to tell us something about the ideas that that are um, predominant about, say, gender relations or what kinds of people are considered okay to socialize together or work together or marry each other. And then there's something that's very interesting in post-conflict settings too, which is the idea that these everyday interactions, family relationships, socializing can be important for how people might be trying to go back to retrieve the sense of normal life that they had before the conflict. So that was those were debates that I had in mind uh, when I began to think about what I'd been observing amongst Dafaris. And so what I learned was that some former revolutionaries, and I stress some, I'm by no means claim that it's all, but some were doing some aspects of daily socialising and kinship practices differently from other Dafaris. I'll mention um, an example uh, from each of family and, and socialising. So for family life, during the revolution, the revolution, because it had this vision of promoting social egalitarianism, it encouraged people to be able to marry across social backgrounds who, before the revolution, it wouldn't have been normal for them to marry. And that focuses on the idea of a man of lower ranking social status marrying a woman of higher ranking social status. Um, there can be variations, but that's the very, very um, controversial instances. And there are, again, controversial and stigmatized after the revolution, but during the revolution, you had marriages like that. Now, whether they they lasted or they ended in divorce or bereavement, these marriages often led to children. Uh, and then where they did lead to children, those children have social backgrounds that stand out to other Dafaris in the post-war period, because these individuals have relatives among groups who would not ordinarily have had kinship links amongst them. So this leads to families that have a socially heterogeneous composition. And that sense of social heterogeneity is also present in some of the forms of everyday socialising amongst former revolutionaries. So in Dofar, what's very common is that married men socialise outside the house in the evening. They have friendship groups where they meet regularly, you know, usually in a cafe. At, I should say, I'm sorry, in Salala, in, in, urban, uh, in the urban centre in the main city in Dofar. And... Uh, those friendship groups are usually um, for people who have a social background in common. Um, that could be around tribe, ethnicity, social, downsta- social standing, uh, racialized identities. But there's a group of former revolutionaries who meet every night in the same place and they have mixed social backgrounds. So that's an example like those socially heterogeneous families where we can see that everyday practices, kinship practices among some former revolutionaries are reproducing social values of inclusivity and egalitarianism that were part of revolutionary programs. So I see them as part of the um, revolutionary afterlives. Um, And that helps us reflect back on some of those big ideas about the everyday and kinship, uh, because we can see in the Dofar case that everyday interactions can, of course, challenge dominant hierarchies. And I'm sure many of us are familiar with those possibilities. But We often associate that with people in some way having a resistance agenda against dominant power relations. And that's 
not what anybody described to me in Oman. Um, so it's this interesting case. Again, it, there's ambiguity here, but we see that some of those practices are um, showing how people are using everyday interactions and kinship to challenge dominant hierarchies, but without it apparently striking anybody in that context as an agenda of, of, of resistance. And the second thing is to revisit the idea of the role of the everyday in the kinship in a post-conflict setting. And here we see that it doesn't seem to be about retrieving a sense of normality from before the conflict, but retrieving the fragile experimental social relations that came together during the time of the conflict to here as a revolution. So these are some of the reasons why the these uh, everyday forms of afterlives you know, stood out to me. Um, but of course, perhaps it's important to mention that there's such a constrained context in Oman that there are reduced numbers of avenues for reproducing revolutionary afterlives. And in that particular historical context, then everyday interactions that are ordinary um, and um, just you know, part of normal life can take on these deeper meanings. Hmm. I think it's a really interesting kind of examination of, as you said, sort of things that in some ways are really radical, but are maybe not taken that way or is integrated again because of this idea of everyday socializing that that can have such an impact on it um but in a very different sort of sense i was surprised to find in the book that you talk about some forms of commemoration of the revolutionary past not just maintaining certain beliefs or maintaining kinship um links that were from them but actually some kind of commemorations of here is what happened and people died and that sort of thing Given how much of an official silence there is around all of this, how have Dufaris found ways to improvise, to create these sorts of commemorations? So the commemoration that I encountered, I call it unofficial commemoration, uh, because it looks quite different from what we usually think of as commemoration. We usually think about commemoration as a public performance that evokes the past. And it's usually significant because it is helping cultivate collective identities. And there's usually a very clear you new know, claimed identity there. It could be around a nation state you know, or other kinds of groups. Uh, so there was once upon a time revolutionary commemoration that fitted that kind of idea of commemoration during the time the front was active. And of course, that focused on celebrating the revolution, but that had to end when the front ended its formal activities. And then the situation we have in post-war Oman is the official silence about the revolution on the part of the government. So no museums or monuments in Oman that mention the revolution, including the people who died fighting for the government um, in, in that war. Um, so we've got that official silence. And then we've got public space being filled up with the very robust official commemoration culture that focuses on Sultan Qaboos and also Oman's more distant past as a seafaring empire. And so that's filling public space. So this raises a particular problem for former revolutionaries because many of them are convinced that they sacrificed a lot for the country, but they get no official recognition. And that raises a broader question about how can people commemorate the past that doesn't fit official narratives? So 
the things that I encountered often fell into categories of, of subtlety and ambiguity. Uh, so I'll, I'll mention one example, which is um, the idea of former revolutionaries repurposing existing rituals um, that potentially become acts of unofficial commemoration. And uh, so in Dofar, if somebody has gone on a journey outside Dofar for a significant time, when they come back, their family and friends will typically organise a reception for them and celebrate their return. And what I was able to learn from relatives uh, or other people interested in the revolution who talked to me about events where former revolutionaries had returned to Dofar is that former revolutionaries already in Dofar would organise these kinds of reception events for them. And these are celebrations are really very ambiguous because it's an open question. What's being celebrated here? Is it an identity as revolutionaries? Is it a return to the fold of a prodigal son figure? And I think that it's um, very difficult to find definitive answers to those questions. And um, some people might then question, well, does this count as commemoration when there's so much subtlety or ambiguity? So I would argue that even if unofficial commemoration can't take on all the qualities that we normally expect of commemoration, I think it's still helpful to acknowledge for two reasons. First, that unofficial commemoration can help us better understand how people transmit knowledge about officially, unofficially silenced past, that you know they don't just stop with the official silence, you know, how they work around it. And so we can see this as part of, say, you know, decolonizing the field of commemoration, stepping away from a focus on state-sanctioned official commemoration. And so if we recognize unofficial commemoration, even though it looks a bit different, this can help us challenge the erasure of revolutionary history, and it can help us to retrieve revolutionary agency, um, recognizing how it's still ongoing in this post-war period as people are finding ways um, subtly to uh, commemorate that past and, and how it's significant for them and transmitting that significance to other generations. In fact, speaking of other generations, um, you mentioned in the book that these afterlives, including the commemoration, but more than that, um, seem to in fact be growing as it's transmitted to new generations rather than decreasing, which you might expect of as people who are actively involved in the front itself, there might be fewer of them. Why do you think it is that the afterlives seem to be growing? I think that uh, there are several reasons, and I'll, I'll mention two. On the one hand, with the passing of time, we can see more clearly long-term impacts that come into view that might have taken a while to come into view. So one example for that would be gender change around a female labour force participation outside the home. So the front had a lot of programs to promote gender equality and um, girls and women in the front or some, you know, living in conditions uh, where, you know, the front was their um, you know, political authority. It had opportunities for education that meant that when they returned to post-war Oman, they had very valuable experience and they pioneered widespread for by widespread, I should clarify, I mean that for women of different social backgrounds, they were pioneering that for multiple backgrounds, people could work, women could work outside the home. So, of course, historically, that had been particular kinds of women, say, in a, you know, the town and, you know, 
sedentary context, it had been especially enslaved women who'd been working outside the home. But when former revolutionary women were returning to post-war Oman, some of them had you know, elite uh, social backgrounds, but they were working outside the home because they had this valuable educational experience and there was a shortage of skilled labor. And some of them met pushback from family members or you know, other people judging them for working outside the home. Um, but when we look at Oman uh, and, and Dofar in particular 40 years later, it's now normal in Dofar for women to work outside the home, women of uh, multiple uh, social backgrounds. And so over the passage of time, we can see how um, a form of behaviour that former revolutionary women had pioneered has now become much more normal there. So with the passing of time, some of the longer term impacts come into view in ways that wouldn't have been clear in the early post-war years. And then there's another factor, I think, um, with uh, recognising, which is that there are new generations who look back to the revolutionaries of the 1960s and 1970s and to their values as they engage in later projects for social and political change in Oman and visions for alternative futures. So a key example of that is that in Dafar, in the main uh, city, Salala, in 2011, from February to May, at a time when there were protests in many countries in, in Southwest Asia and North Africa. So there were protests too in Oman in different cities, including Salala. And one of the bloggers who wrote about those protests praises the values of social inclusivity of the protesters and how they were coming together around collective grievances and um, overcoming differences of, 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 of tribes and their different interests. And so that's a really strong echo of the ways that people were mobilizing around collective grievances across tribal boundaries uh, during the revolution. And so we can see that the values that had been important in the revolution have this capacity to resurface in the projects for progressive politics of, of later generations. And I think that that's partly because of something about revolutionary social change, the idea that even when a revolution meets with military defeat, many of the people involved have undergone massive personal transformations, but those transformations don't stop with them as a person. They have wider social implications because they change the way those people interact with other people, the way they help raise the next generation. So there's a... a um, dynamic within revolutionary social change that can have wider social effects. Um, but it's also about, I think, the historical context in Oman, which is that there are many Omanis who are frustrated with the current arrangements of political power, of inequalities in economic distribution. And of course, under authoritarianism, they meet many barriers of, 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 of repression for trying to express dissent. And so in that kind of historical context where many Imanis continue with their political and economic frustrations, then they're going to continue to look back to this revolution as a key period of people having pursued those kinds of projects. And so they can, they can find inspiration from that. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that to us. And I think it's really interesting um, to understand it and hopefully maybe to keep an eye on kind of what happens next with this now that we have all this wonderful insight from your book. That leaves me only with my final question, which is that if we know what we might want to look out for um, in Oman next, 
what might we look out for from you next? Is there anything you're working on um, or thinking of working on, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Well, I will be writing more to take up where Afterlives of Revolution concludes. So I want to write more about the reappearance of revolutionary values in these post-war platforms for progressive politics, the 2011 protests, but also electoral leagues in Dofar that operate, and in particular how some of the post-war electoral candidates question inter, um, inter and intra-gender hierarchies, ethnic hierarchies, um, hierarchies of, of tribe and, and racialized identities. So I think there are there's more to say about uh, how Dafaris are you know, drawing on these values in, in further platforms. But I also want to look at what we might think of as the afterlives of the paramilitaries. Uh, the paramilitaries are still there in Dofar, and people explain to me they're staffed by relatives of the original recruits from the 1970s. And uh, they had a very intriguing role in the 2011 protests. And I'd like to think more about how we can look at the post-war roles of paramilitaries and how they might play a part in maintaining or actually questioning the post-war status quo. So there's more to say about where the afterlives of revolution can take us. Um, And then beyond that, I would like to uh, plan a, a, a book project to think comparatively about the two places that I've done field work in Northwest Africa and Southern Arabia, and to foreground the abolitionist projects of the late 20th century Arab liberation movements there. And that both movements that I've studied, they abolished enslavement. And so I'd like to tell a different story about abolitionism and to try and foreground experiences of revolution for enslaved and, and formerly enslaved persons. So, um, I think that will take a few years, but uh, I, I look forward to the chance to be uh, talking about that. Yeah, no, fascinating projects. Thank you for sharing them with us. Um, and while you're off working on them, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Afterlives of Revolution, Everyday Counter Histories in Southern Oman, published by Stanford University Press. Alice, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you.